Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here with the star of our show, Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner, episode 140 on our network. want to remind our audience before we get going here today, continue to do what you're doing. Download, listen, like, subscribe. We're up to over 13,800 subscribers right now. I think we'll eclipse 14,000 as this show is released uh, later on today. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You guys have converted an old school guy and myself. I was the last man to the Twitter, to the uh, Facebook page. So I'm finally on it. I respond to one question a day online and I get back to everybody offline. So lots of good questions uh, in relation to the shows we've had this week and especially the one we had today. Uh, Jim, welcome back to the show. Great episode last week. You covered your spring training trip with the Twins and we've got a lot in store today with the World Baseball Classic underway. Yeah, we really do, Dave. And another thing that's uh, crossed my desk this week is the uh, magazine honoring Scott Rowland and uh, Freddie McGriff and and uh, highlighting the upcoming Hall of Fame induction that they'll be the two inductees. So that's something I'm looking forward to uh, as well. I'm going to be playing in the Hall of Fame Classic, which is a game that they stage around Memorial Day. And Fergie Jenkins, Raleigh Fingers will be there. Uh, uh, there'll be one or two other Hall of Famers, and then at least one former recently retired uh, major leaguer, so they can do the playing and we can do the coaching, but that's always a, a nice event in Cooperstown as well. Oh, absolutely. Now, you're, you're not going to play? I, I don't think I will. I, I was there in 2009 when Bob Feller trained all uh, winter at age 90 to be able to throw – the pitch 60 feet, six inches, which he did to Paul Molitor. But uh, oh, well. uh, I i don't think I'm going down that road. Okay. That's a one. It's a beautiful field, a double day field. Yeah. And yeah. I actually had a chance to play on it twice as a college player um, in all-star games and, and love the opportunity. It is a Homer dome though. It is. A, oh, it is yeah. A, yeah. Well, it's, yeah. It's just a, it's just a little country ballpark that young players would, uh, it would be the right size for them, but the big leaguers, no, it's, it's uh, pretty small. Well, I was not a launch angle guy, so I was beating it into the ground in, you know, in spite of the fact that it was a shallow left and center field. Well, so Good good for you. I wish there were more of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to heaven, right? Haven't done that. Well, so. you know, it's, it's interesting that while we're on that subject is when I coached for Pete Rose in the 80s, and uh, Cincinnati had a player that I think could have been the equal of Ricky Henderson. His name was Gary Reedus. And, and Gary had hit, I think, uh, 17 home runs in the minor leagues. And I think he, he sort of thought of himself as maybe a power hitter. And Pete would stand behind the cage in those days when we played on a lot of AstroTurf fields and just beg him to hit every ball on the ground off the turf and use his speed. And now when you stand behind the cage, every hitting coach is is working on trying to see how high the hitter can launch the ball and keep it off the ground. So that's another example of how the game has changed and evolved into, uh, you know, a power game and uh, and hitting the ball on the ground and, and running as you did uh, seems to not be part of today's today's strategy. Yeah. Now, if you were facing these guys today, these uh, it, it appears to be one track swings. You got a few guys like Luis Arias, who was with the Twins, now with the Marlins. 
guys that are a little bit more line drive uh, on the ground type of hitters. But if you were facing these guys today that were one track, what would be your approach to pitching them? I know it's different with every batter, but in general. Yeah, I, you know, I would, I would have to actually be there in person and experience it to, to really find out hitter by hitter. But what I've observed, and I was talking to Rocco Baldelli about this uh, at spring training, is that every hitter now is geared toward maximum velocity and they swing as hard as they can. So that tells me that a Jamie Moyer, uh, I mean, I was an off-speed pitcher later in my career. I was I was sort of a, uh, not a power pitcher, but I had a good live fastball, but it had movement down and away. So I was striving for, for ground ball outs. And I still think, uh, even though I heard people years ago and they were non-playing personnel say, well, the sinker, the two-seam sinker is, is dead. It's no longer effective. Well, I just think, you know, if a guy's a low ball hitter, you pitch him lower than low. But if you have that ball moving down and away at the knees, uh, it's still going to be very difficult to, to launch that ball into the ground. So I would have to find out, first of all, if that strategy works. And then it, it kind of goes back to the same thing that's that's been in vogue for years, high and tight, low and away, get your off-speed pitches over when you're behind in the count. So if they're all geared for, for as they say today, velo, uh, we used to say dead red. That was one of our expressions for fastballs or high heat. Uh, I'd have to find out if that off-speed uh, BP fastball, batting practice fastball uh, would be effective. I, I tend to think it would be because I don't see how a hitter could be geared for high 90s. And like Josh Donaldson's a great, he just jumps out in front as quickly as he can and still be effective on an, a good off-speed pitch. But uh, like I always say when I was broadcasting games and they'd say, what pitch would you throw them now? I said, I don't know standing up here, but if I were on the mound and have faced this guy a number of times, I would know. Yeah. And I've heard you say that before too on, on, uh, on our show. And uh, I totally respect that. That's, I mean, that's the nature of your professionalism and you, and your abilities as a pitcher too. I, I like that answer. I, my, now we work with my son a little bit. That's one of the pitches we're working with him on. He's he throws a fastball. He throws strikes. Um, he tries to get through as many batters as he can without showing a secondary pitch, just by locating his changeup as his next pitch. But we've been working on the the sinker just because of that particular thing you mentioned that 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 launch angle swing that seems to be susceptible to that ball diving um, in and away uh, below the knees at the hitter. And he's had some some success in his limited times using it a lot of a lot of uh, top over swings not rollover so much but they're almost pulling off the plane altogether, and it just kind of grazes the top um of the ball yeah, so. that, that's that's exactly what we i mean if i faced uh, a hitter a right-hand hitter that was a low ball hitter which was ex, uh, exceptional in in my day most right-hand hitters were high ball hitters they didn't want to hit the ball on the ground so they wouldn't chase that low pitch but Occasionally, you'd get a low ball hitter, and then our expression was pitch him lower than low because if a guy's a low ball hitter, he's apt to go after a low pitch more than a high pitch. So if it's a little below low, Roger Maris was a low ball hitter, then you get him to hit that ball in the top. But we didn't really call it a sinker. That was just a fastball with movement. But today they call it a two-seam fastball. If, if you hold the ball across the two 
narrow seams, kind of at where the horseshoe comes together on a baseball, uh, that that creates, as you know, that creates more movement, and you can grip it so that it creates lateral movement and downward movement. Yeah. And I still think that pitch would be uh, would very be very effective today. It would be interesting. You remember Scott Erickson when he came up with the Twins in the oh, 90s? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott just had that lethal, sinking, hard, sinking fastball. And he would get ground ball after ground ball. So I would, it would really be interesting to see how his fastball would match up with today's hitters trying to, trying to launch it. I, I kind of think he'd still be very successful. It's, it certainly makes sense that that's, that would be the root of pitching. I have, and I, I thought about this, as you mentioned, I had a conversation with a, a, a gentleman whose total focus is analytics, uh, spin rate, every, everything you can imagine. And I had a question with him and I have to put on different hats when I'm talking with, with the different groups, because I do have a advanced degree in analytics, but I also as a former professional baseball player and a college coach. So uh, I put on the, the former professional baseball player hat when I talked to him and was talking spin rate. And I said, as a hitter, I would love to face pitchers with high spin rate because, um, I can get the same spin rate back at you that you're throwing at me. Um, does that make sense to you as a pitcher? The, the tighter the spin, the, the tighter the ball coming back at you? I've heard you mention that. and I, I'm not as knowledgeable in that field as you are, but that would make sense to me because I know we, we, we saw guys back in the 60s and 70s that had very live fastballs up in the strike zone. And yet, I mean, they would give up some of the longest home runs. And, and that might be the reason why. I'm, I'm not sure. I know, uh, and, and you may know this from analytics, the, the, the two-seam moving fastball down and away like I had, that tended to have a lower spin, if I'm, if I'm right about yeah, that. Yeah, it's got a deader, it's got a dead, uh, I'm, using, I'm using the English language improperly, but it's got a deader movement. Yeah. Going away. So it's going to have more dead movement. back. It's like hitting a knuckle. I mean, think about hitting a knuckleball. Right. When the ball comes at you, when you hit it back at the guy, it's going to, it's pretty much going to knuckle back out there for the most part. Right. right. But I thought I'd throw that at you. I think I stymied him a little bit. He's going to research and get me back probably with some charts and graphs and things that. Well, the, the spin rate, the spin rate, uh, I, I think can help a pitcher in training, but uh, I go back to a, a, talking baseball and talking sports in general with my friend Bill Parcells, who was one of the great football coaches. And he says, well, you know, today all these percentages say on fourth and two, here's your percentage of making a first down. And like coach says, well, who's on the other side of the field? Is it Lawrence Taylor? Yeah. You know, if it's Lawrence Taylor, I don't care what your percentages say, you may not make it. Well, with spin rate, applying that to spin rate, well, okay, it works on a lot of hitters early in the game, but in a tight situation where the pitcher has a little more pressure on him and he's facing Mike Trout, is that spin rate the same? So that's why I can't I can't buy into just saying this pitcher has the highest one of the highest spin rates because it's still going to come down to what is his spin rate when he's facing this particular hitter, and every hitter is different. Yeah. No, I, I think it's that's fair to say. A lot of the stuff's in a vacuum, and in a vacuum, we can we can uh, if we surround ourselves with the right people, you'll get the answers you want eventually. I want to take you back to the Hall of Fame. You mentioned Scott Rowland and McGriff, and you'll be up there for the ceremony. 
when, when you're up there now as, as part of the Hall of Fame crew, are there certain people that you will look to seek out to, to I mean, you're always evolving. You know, when we, every time we talk, you're constantly learning still about the game and seeking people out to learn. Are there people that you will be seeking out or that you look to talk baseball with to continue to learn about the game? Oh, I'm sure I will. You know, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting uh, position I'm in because I don't, I don't enjoy watching today's game. It, it doesn't bring me uh, satisfaction like it did, you know, back when I played and even when I coached and when I broadcast for the first probably through maybe a little after 2010. And that's when when all the science began to invade it. But I still I still enjoy following the game. And, and at the Hall of Fame in the Oda Saga, I will have a cross-section of executives, both new executives and, uh, you know, former ones that will be there, either like a John Sherholtz, who is an executive in the Hall of Fame, and uh, exchanging ideas. And then if I see a, uh, if I were to see, for example, a Billy Epler there, who I knew when he was in the kind of the back office with the Yankees, uh, I'd say, hey, tell me now, what, uh, how are you guys operating this game? I'm interested to find out how, you know, how they go about it because I don't like to criticize anything that I don't know about, you know, to just blatantly say this doesn't work. Well, you have to find out uh, why they're doing what they're doing. There's got to be a reason behind it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always at a very adamant about my reasoning because uh, I always say the only thing I have to back up my opinions is 25 seasons of major league experience and 625 starts. And I pitched starting, relieving, short game, short man, long man, four-day rotation, five-day rotation. So if I've experienced everything and I learned from the greats, Warren Spahn, Robin Roberts, and Whitey Ford. So until somebody can convince me that that doesn't work anymore, then I'm going to continue to take a stand and dig my feet in on it. Yeah. Well, I think uh, your experience qualifies you and then some <laughs> to, to speak to anybody about pretty much anything. With Now, I asked you this before the show and, you know, we're, we're seeing, as we usually do, a rash of injuries throughout spring training. And it's hard for me to judge, as as you you said it. I've never been a pitcher, and I didn't I didn't get the opportunity as a professional player to get to big league spring training. Um, what are the differences between how you guys approach spring training back in your time as a player, as opposed to how they're doing it now, and it, you know, kind of leading into these injuries a little bit? Well, the key word you mentioned there is training. Spring training, because the early days we had to work in the off season, so there were no baseball activities going on. I was playing, in fact, uh, the great Viking coach Bud Grant passed away this past week at 95. I used to play a lot of racquetball against Bud and his coaches, Jerry Burns and Buster Murtis. And that was kind of my off, off-season exercise. But we didn't, uh, we didn't get into any baseball uh, activities till we got down to Florida. So then it was training. It was just... Uh, playing catch and throwing batting practice. And the first two starts, we may not even uh, use signs, just get the feel of the mound. But nowadays, the difference is they, they have off-season workout programs. And now they came to come to spring training and they're fit and they're ready. And it's no longer spring training, it's spring performing. Well, if you compare that to what's happening to young, 
young kid pitchers that have to throw 90 miles an hour to impress college coaches. They go against entirely what Dr. Andrews, who was the uh, right after Dr. Job, the preeminent elbow surgeon, and he is saying, Tate, you have to have an off season and play other sports. Well, today's players don't have an off season. I mean, I guess they can if they want to, but a lot of the pitchers, they don't. So they've never really given that, that arm a chance to maybe rest as much as it should. Uh, you know, I had the Tommy John injury, the ulnar collateral ligament, my last start of the year in 1967. And we didn't have the, science, the surgery then, and nobody wanted to get their arm cut on because it usually meant the end of your career. So I just let my arm rest all spring. I didn't do it or all winter. I played a little racquetball, but my arm was always below my shoulder, like a softball pitcher. I didn't do anything above my shoulder, any, any kind of stress on my elbow. And then I went to spring training and went through, quote, training easily. And well, I, I didn't miss any starts. I, I started, I was compromised as far as velocity for a few years, but I never missed any starts. And I was able to to pitch, uh, you know, well over 200 innings each year. So I rested to let my arm heal. And I think nowadays they, they don't have that period of time. And I've seen it with Noah Syndergaard, when, who I would watch with the Mets. You know, he's, he's working out down there and, and is buffed and looks like a, a linebacker. And then right away they want to throw 100 miles an hour early in the spring and they end up uh, on the disabled list and sometimes on the, on the operating table. So that's the big difference is they come to spring training and they start performing like it's during the season. And we just treated it like, who cares if you give up nine runs? You're just getting yourself in shape. Yeah. And you made mention of, you didn't go as deep into it as you did today, but you made mention of that last podcast a little bit where um, spring training numbers and statistics really are a little bit meaningless because pitchers are working through some pitches uh, or supposed to be anyway. And I've heard Cal Ripken say before when he was mic'd up, I think it may have been his last year at spring training, asking Mark McGuire, how many at-bats do you like to get in spring training just to feel like you're ready? Um, so that may have been the last of the era when, when Ripken was kind of phasing out and uh, just using spring training to get his you know 40 at-bats in to get his body feeling good. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I can't remember the exact number, but I know I, I would hear hitters say that, that they wanted – X amount of at-bats probably as pitchers. Uh, you know, my general, I can remember it like it happened yesterday, but I'd get to spring training. This was particularly true when Johnny Sane was my coach. Uh, the first five or six days, we, we'd play a little catch. We'd get on the mound, maybe throw five minutes of batting practice, uh, three days in a row, take a day off, and then increase it. And then when we got to the games, it was three innings, the first, unless you just absolutely had uh, some long innings, they might take you out. But you'd go three innings and then uh, three days rest, like your regular routine during the season as an every four-day starter. And then you'd pitch three innings again. And then you'd increase it to five. And then I'd go to seven. And then when you went to seven, uh, when I was done with seven, I would go down to the bullpen and pitch an imaginary three, four, five innings more, not at full speed, but I use my legs with the theory being if my legs are conditioned to go 12 innings, then I ought to be able to go nine innings on opening day. So that was kind of our training regimen. 
And that's complete. That's why I consider myself and a lot of my colleagues, we're kind of irrelevant when we go to spring training because that is so far away from the way they train today. Uh, you know, they, they gear toward uh, get them in shape to pitch one inning and count his pitches, and if it gets up to 25, we, we because the big emphasis is on power, I guess that's why. But that's why we are we are so different that uh, we're not even in the same on the same planet with the way they train today. So when you you finished, let's say three innings or five innings, you would go immediately to the bullpen and and almost complete a game. Well, I would once I worked up to seven. Because they, I think there was one or two springs where I pitched either eight innings or maybe a complete game in spring training if I was having a lot of stress-free innings. But you had to bear in mind that there were also some relief pitchers that wanted to get work mm -hmm. and get ready for the season. So you wanted, say, your short guy, your closer to come in in the eighth and ninth in some key situations to get for him to get ready. So then I would, that's when I'd go down to the bullpen. I remember Louis Tiant and I would do it. And, and we, when the other team came up to bat, we'd get up and warm up. We'd pitch like we were going to face like four hitters, and then we'd sit down uh, when our team came to bat. So it was simulated game conditions at, you know, maybe 75% as far as you're throwing, but you used your legs. And that's, you know, that's what maybe gets lost today as they count pitches, and they use the expression, we're, we're protecting his arm. Well, it's all about the legs getting tired. The, the reason the injuries probably happen is that if your legs begin to get tired in the fifth or sixth inning, then the ball starts elevating up because you can't, you don't drive as well off the mound. And then that's really what, what causes uh, uh, injuries. If you look at the prototype, the, the, the gold standard, Tom Seaver, driving off the mound and the way he used his legs is, his back knee would even scrape along the ground. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that was always the big deal. Get your legs in shape. Uh, and, and you have to have that. You do in any sport. Uh, it, it works from the ground up, whether you're talking uh, golf or football or probably tennis, too, for that matter. Yeah. Seaver's baseball cards are famous for that picture. The pictures he has every year of it with the, the knee basically touching the ground and driving that. Are, are there any... And I guess the answer is probably no, but it's worth asking. As you look around baseball, are there any guys out there, you know, a pitcher that you see that gives you the impression that this could be, if this guy has success, he's got potential throwback mentality. Maybe the game could, the pendulum could swing a little bit in terms of pitching. Well, I think the guy that could would be Max Scherzer. Uh, I mean, he puts everything into every pitch, but he never – he never gets to pitch uh, or seldom gets to pitch that eighth or ninth inning because he does throw a lot of pitches because he strikes out a lot of hitters. But And, and there are certainly, a, a few years back, it was Madison Bumgarner. You know, they made a big deal out of uh, Mad Bum coming in, doing what he did in the World Series, you know, pitching relief and pitching X amount of innings. Well, you know, I saw Koufax, in fact, pitched against him when he shut us out in game five and two days later shut us out in game seven. And we didn't get a sniff, and, and you know that was kind of what the way pitchers were trained. So guys like uh, Bumgardner a few years ago, and now I think uh, Scherzer today. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are others that could Alcantara with uh, uh, 
with the Marlins. I'll tell you, a young pitcher I met in spring training, I was really impressed with is Pablo Lopez, who the Twins got in trade for Luisa Rise. Yeah, and uh, I, I think he could he could really be a big factor with the uh, uh, with the Twins, along with Joe Ryan, who had a nice rookie season. But again, they won't be allowed to to do. Uh, you know, if I were coaching like I did when I coached uh, for Pete in 1985 and Tommy Browning won a, a 20 games as a rookie, first rookie in 34 years to do it, 31 years, but they don't allow pitchers to to pitch that long anymore. So that'll never happen again. Yeah. And and the last question on this, and then uh, we can move forward into maybe a pitcher that goes against the grain a little. Um, how, how much of it do you think you know, when you're looking at the landscape of baseball, these guys are being asked to max out. It certainly shortens their careers, shortens the amount of innings. I'm being a skeptic here, but does does that have a financial component to it where major league teams don't have to pay them as long? Maybe it, it works itself out in arbitration where they don't have to pay as much if they get an arbitration with a player? Is, am I on you mean, you mean because they, they don't have that big much of a record? Well, their their record isn't – the numbers aren't – so when they're comparing numbers from the past salaries, they haven't thrown yeah. as many innings. They haven't. They don't have as many wins. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like Degrom. Poor guy may not may uh, you know certainly won't qualify for the Hall of Fame in terms of wins because he's he was shorted so many with the Mets. But um, how much of it is a numbers game? Do you think financially? Well, I, I don't think financially because they're not <clears throat> they're not comparing those guys to. Like the uh, fans will, when they see me, they they think it's like we're superhuman. Oh, you pitched 180 complete games. I said, that really wasn't a big deal. That's the way we were trained. So if you compare today's pitchers to that, it looks like a big deal. But they're comparing today's pitchers with other pitchers today. So it's kind of apples to apples. So I don't think it's affecting them at all financially because you got the agents that goes in and use the comps of other pitchers that are getting paid X. And, uh, you know, you, you, I kind of laugh at it when I look at baseball reference, but I'm happy for the players' sake because, you know, we got held down for years before free agency. And you'll see a guy with a very mediocre record uh, on a big league standard and make millions of dollars. And, and that's because that's the way the game is today. You don't have to, you don't have to have those big numbers to still, uh, to still make big money. And I think from a player standpoint, they're saying, well, uh, and Rocco Baldelli was saying how every pitcher throws every pitch as hard as he can and every hitter swings as hard as they can. So that just stands to reason that they're going to be more susceptible to injury, maybe have a shorter career. But if they have three or four good years, our theory was, Okay, you did it once, kid, the general manager. See if you can do it again, and then you do it again. And then, well, the theory was if you had four pretty productive seasons, you could start making some decent money. Uh, by, and I'm talking decent money, you might get up as high as 50000 Well, nowadays, you're in, in four years, if you have one or two good ones, you go to arbitration, all of a sudden you're up in the millions. And now if you have four or five years, uh, you know, I'll see, I'll read stories of guys that have retired with, with what I would call average big league careers. But fortunately, they have made a lot of money in a short period of time and they can do that. And good for them. Yeah, that certainly is a different landscape. Now they make 40000 to start. Hey, this is, 
this is what I heard. Oh, it was uh, it was Parcells. He was at spring training with Doug Jennings, who's a good friend of his, and Doug's part of the Nationals. Uh, he used to, I think he managed the Marlins and then was in their farm department at one time. But yeah, we had him on the podcast earlier this year. Oh, uh, yeah, I think they did the math. And after he signed his big contract uh, and, and he's fallen uh, on the IL due to injuries, Steven Strasburg has averaged $8 million a start. That's not a bad day's work. Just <laughs> when you're only going four and a third. Yeah, because, you know, he's only been able to pitch, I think, in the last two years. He's only been able to pitch, I want to say, like 30-some innings or something. Yeah, he's... Uh... He was a. I mean, he did. He had a great. Uh, there's an example. I did his debut with uh, Bob Costas and John Smoltz, and it was as impressive a night of pitching that I could imagine for a young, ballyhooed pitcher who had never pitched in the big leagues, and the expectations were so high. And I mean, I thought right then this this guy's going to be you know like the next Tom Seaver, big, strong, but he. Uh, he hasn't done that. It's been injuries and one thing or another, but he's made a ton of money in the short period of time that he's pitched. Absolutely. Was there anything in his approach, his delivery that you saw that may have contributed to it, or is that too hard to detect? I don't think so. I mean, I think one of the reasons that the injuries pop up, um, and I was talking to John Stuper about this. John is a is a name familiar to me and a lot of college people because he coached Yale for 27 years and, and I was kind of his mentor when we were with the Cardinals and uh, and talked a lot about pitching and he's seen it where pitchers throw so much less today and and I always preached you know the more you throw within reason the less chance you have of hurting your arm and I think they, they overly protected uh, Strasburg one year when I think the Nationals could have gone to the World Series. Yeah, they shut him down. And, uh, and then eventually he did go. But I think that the fact that they don't throw enough and on regular rest and log a number of innings, uh, that throwing with as much power as they do, they kind of lose the touch and feel. And I, I think that's why the injuries happen because Strasburg had – you know, just a perfect body for a power pitcher. Uh, he had the size and the legs, you know, the thighs. And uh, uh, but uh, if you're if you're not out there every four days and going seven or eight or learning how to pitch those last couple innings, when you know you have to become your own relief pitcher, uh, that third or fourth at bat, they don't get a chance to do that anymore. And if they did, I think we would we would see fewer injuries and we'd see these great pitchers hanging around and finishing the games for us, which would really be fun to watch. Yeah. Well, we, we call those guys the all-airport team. They get off the planes and they look like giants and thoroughbreds, but they never make it to the field. But they look yeah. like the airport. But, uh, talking about pitchers now, kind of want to transition to a little bit more controversial uh, pitcher in the media, but has had success uh, in Major League Baseball, 2020 Cy Young Award winner, a um, lot, lot of good outings for the Cleveland Indians before he signed with the Dodgers, and uh, suspended initially for 324 games, got reduced to 194, but was just, uh, the charges were just dropped on Trevor Bauer uh, because they could not prove uh, that he beaten and sexually abused the woman that accused him beyond a reasonable doubt. So 
He's now signing in Japan. So kind of a lot to unpack there, but let's start as a pitcher. Um, what, what kind of things did you like about Trevor Bauer? Is, is he still a, could he still be a good pitcher in Major League Baseball? What did you like oh, about him? One question. I, I think, you know, when I first, uh, when Trevor Bauer first came on the, on the scene, you know, he immediately had that reputation of being, you know, kind of a, a flake or different or kooky and, and very unorthodox. But <clears throat> you look at their performance, I mean, he has been durable. He goes, <clears throat> excuse me, Dave, he goes to, uh, was it driveline or one of the off season? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his way, he, he has proven that his way is successful. I, I give him a lot of credit that He's a guy that can maintain his stuff. He's improved his he improved his curveball, and I mean he could step on the rubber with proper training for any major league team right now and be a potential Cy Young award winner. But I think because of the off field uh, situation he was in, that I don't think any any organization in the United States wants to touch him because he, the blowback they're going to get based on the the accusations and I. I think that's why the Dodgers just said we're going to pay him off. And I think from a PR standpoint, no other team would touch him. And uh, he, he won't have that to deal with over in Japan. Obviously, Japan is, uh, has done enough research, I guess, to say that uh, they think he'll be, he'll, he, he'll be accepted over there. I, I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll tear that league up pitching-wise, I'm sure. This guy's he's a real stud. I, you know, one of the things I liked about him, or I like about him, I don't mean talk about him in past tense because I'm hoping he makes his way back to Major League Baseball, is that he he's always been his own pitching coach. Even though he yes. was in driveline, he was he was thinking, he was creating new ways. He he would get on, you know, he, he's part of that look at me generation, but he would get on social media and he would talk pitching. He does some, again, I, I the word flaky is that's perfect. He's flaky in a number of different ways, but he articulates what he's doing in terms of pitching as good or better than anybody, in my opinion, at least he's, he's thinking anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. He, he, uh, I think of a golfer and you, you hear PGA golfers say they want to own their own swing. You know, they all have different swings, different coaches tell them different things. And, and I learned that as a pitcher through guys like Eddie Lopat and Johnny saying that, Eventually, you have to become your own coach. And I think what we had the advantage, those of us old fossils that came in the minor leagues in the 50s, I never had a pitching coach till I got to the big leagues. So whether it's high school, college, minor leagues, it was here's the ball, you're pitching, figure it out. And so we learned to be our own pitching coach. When things went wrong, we could, we could I think, figure out to get back on track quicker than the guy that's really relying on uh, the coach to tell him what to do. And Bauer was that kind of guy, as you mentioned, he, he took a, a, an interest. He was curious. He took an interest in why the ball does certain things when he does this and he's figured it out. So he could be his own coach. Yeah. Now he was one of the biggest opponents uh, to the sticky tack, any type of substance on the fingers. And he was actually accusatory to some, Major League guys didn't name names, but named awards. And that's easy to assign it because there's only one winner per award. Um, and almost thumbed his nose at Major League Baseball when he won the 2020 Cy Young Award because he started using the st- sticky tack stuff and he was very, very vocal about it because they wouldn't shut it down. Um, again, part of his flaky nature, 
uh, for good or for bad. Do you think, I mean, how much of that do you think had to do with teams staying away as well? I think that's part of it. They were hesitant. Uh, you know, baseball has always had a name. It was much worse back in my era. If you didn't fit that mold of what they wanted a baseball player to be, both on the field and off the field, and I'm not talking about any immoral activities. It's just the way you dressed and the way you fit in with a group. If you were a little bit uh, on the offbeat side, and, and a lot of those guys were – were seemed to come from California. <laughs> I don't know why, but but they were. It was tougher for them to be uh, accepted. We had a good right hand pitcher named Steve Barber uh, that came up with us with the Twins. But you know, he never liked to wear a sport jacket. He always had a little different kind of clothing. And all of a sudden, the administration is like they they held that against him. And that's the way it was. There there was that that kind of model that you had to you had to look like and act like. And, uh, and that's some of that carryover when they look at uh, Bauer from the time he came up, they knew this guy's different and uh, probably every organization uh, wasn't ready to handle that. It's like uh, the Red Sox with Bill Lee. I don't know if every organization, Bill eventually went to uh, Montreal, but he was a very productive pitcher, but I, a lot of organizations probably, shy away from him because, you know, he had that famous nickname, the Spaceman. Yeah. You might remember when Bowie Kuhn uh, called him into the uh, Park Avenue offices and said to Bill, you know, we we heard that you've been smoking marijuana. And he said, no, I don't smoke it. I put it on my pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's uh, And so Bauer will be with the Yokohoma, <laughs> Yokohoma stars and the Bay stars and what what do you think he has to do? Because when he was when he was going through this legal trouble, he was maintaining silence in regards to the legal case because he had to. But in terms of other stuff, there was videos I saw on social media where he was promoting the it was like the who could do the craziest celebration after a home run. Those are things that I kind of for me now um, outside of what he did, I was looking at that. And I was like, geez, that's not the kind of stuff we want to be promoting to kids. Not as bad as the stuff as he was accused of. But again, during this time, he was still being a little bit controversial with promoting um, extra celebrations, let's just say, when kids hit home runs. Well, I, I think over in uh, Japan, he'll find out when you look at the the Asian athletes, whether it's golf. Uh, I mean, I Matsuyama, uh, I'm such a fan of his of the PGA Tour. When his, when his caddy, when he won the Masters, the caddy got behind the 18th green and bowed to the course. You know, they are they are so professional and respectful of the way the game was played, and, and they're not going to deviate from that. And I, I think uh, that Bauer will, will have to, you know, he, he won't be a, a proponent of any of that stuff over in the Japanese leagues. They, uh, I mean, I was – so fortunate to be covering Yankee baseball when Adeki Matsui was there. And, and what a treat to see a guy approach his job the way he did and conduct himself the way he did. And that's, that's I think, is, is the way they learn over there and they're trained to have that respect for the game. You don't show up the other player. And, uh, yeah, I, I think Trevor will have to kind of fit into that mode over there. Yeah. And if he does, maybe somebody will take a shot on him. And at that old adage, and, and this may come from Parcells as well. We bring him up once a show. I think he, uh, when, when distraction, you know, you look at distraction, you look at productivity. When distraction outweighs the productivity, you get rid of the, the distraction. And 
I guess uh, in a way MLB did that with Bauer that he's in Japan. I hope he I hope he learns their way. I, I like Japan and kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hope so too. And uh, that that kind of transitions us over to World Baseball class. Now Japan's four and zero. Are you surprised by that at all? Not at all. I think uh, I think the United States got uh, USA got clubbed by Mexico. I remember doing the game. Uh, in, in Chase Park when the fans came over from Mexico and boy, that's quite a, that's quite a scene to see their enthusiasm. But, yeah. you know, I, I think uh, Japan, I think their team probably has the best of the best over there. Well, team USA, they've, they got all the marquee players in the lineup and the pitchers they have are big league pitchers, but they're not, they're not Max Scherzer or they're not uh, Alcantara. They're not, uh, Kershaw, they're they're not, you know, the the top name pitchers like Degrom. Uh, they're they're not the pitch. So no matter what kind of a lineup you have, you still have to have decent pitching. And I think maybe that's where uh, Japan comes to the front. But it's not surprising to see them. They won the first two World Baseball Classics. Uh, I just like the way they the way they train, the way they approach the game, and uh, it's kind of fun to see some of the lesser uh, countries that are not known for baseball to, to win a game here and there, you know, like Israel or Italy or something like that, because uh, it just gives them hope that one day uh, the world will actually have a World Series. We've always called it a World Series because we were kind of the only teams in the world that played professional baseball uh, for 162 games. But it's really just a USA champion series because we now know that teams from the Dominican, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, they can put a quality big league team on the field just like Team USA can. Yeah. I I have become disenfranchised in a way watching Major League Baseball, but I have been reinvigorated watching this World Baseball Classic, and I can't put a finger on it. Maybe it's the enthusiasm. Um it's the, uh, you know, there's everybody's in every pitch, whether it's the players or the coaches. And I'm not even paying attention to the score, really. I'm watching every single play. I haven't done that in a while in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I, I think it that that's one of the things that why some players can't handle New York when they come to play for the Yankees, because under the George Steinbrenner regime, they always said every game is Armageddon, every game on the Yankee schedule is game seven of the World Series. There's that urgency. If he's in attendance and things go wrong, everybody in the office is vibrating, like, what's he going to do next? So there's you just 162 games. It is difficult to mentally get up every game, I'm sure, for the everyday players. Yeah. Pitchers, it was different. We, you know, we pitched every every four days. But when you see the World Baseball Classic, that's what this is. I mean, it's like... March Madness in basketball. It's like one or two, one or two losses and they go home. So there's that urgency and it brings out the intensity and it probably brings out better play. And as you said, you, uh, you pay closer attention. That's, that's probably why, uh, you know, being a part of the game for so many years and the way the game was played versus today that's why I can't get as uh, enthused about it because I, I liken today's game as really just uh, kind of a glorified home run derby. And I don't enjoy that baseball as much as I did, say, being a member of the 1982 Cardinals when 
we hit the fewest home runs and beat the team in the World Series that hit the most home runs. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I like that analogy too, the March Madness. That makes it, it does put it in perspective a little bit. 162 games at full tilt is obviously unrealistic, but um, boy, the, the fans are into it. The play, you could see the players into it. Um, the enthusiasm is directed the right way, and uh, it's real. It's yeah. not staged for social media. Yeah, it's really grown. It's been fun to see. I wasn't a part of the 2006, uh, but starting in 2009, I did the coverage in 2009, 2013, 2017. And then, of course, they they missed uh, the, the 2021 because of the pandemic. But I just noticed each of those years, the enthusiasm picked up and the participation from the major league players in the United States, that picked up because I think uh, – one of the players would go back and say, hey, this is really fun. It's like a, you know, a short tournament and every game's important and there's intensity there. So more and more guys are going to show up. You you hope that in the future, maybe um, the Cy Young Award winners are the top three like that in every, uh, on every, in every league will also show up. And that would, you know, that would give Team USA uh, the best chance to, to win. Yeah, they certainly got throttled by Mexico. I think they, they sit at two and one right now. Venezuela is four and zero. I mean, that's a that's a tough. Pool D is probably, in my opinion, the toughest bracket. Venezuela, Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico. Oh yeah. Now I didn't see who pitched for Mexico, but it might have been one of those crafty guys that's got a little of this and a little of that, and didn't try to blow them away with ninety eight mile an hour fastballs and and the. Uh, Team USA hitters are not accustomed to facing pitchers that do that. Yeah, correct. And they they came out of the gate strong. Mexico they they came out swinging the sticks against the USA pitchers. And uh, Canada, I, I was surprised at Canada two and one. I know they have a couple major league players on their their roster, and uh, but I'm surprised there that that division is locked. The Pool C is locked at two and one. With three teams, just kind of give our audience a, a, a clue. The Pool B in Tokyo, Japan's running away with it, four and zero. Australia's three and one. I see that as kind of a weaker division there. Pool B, Korea's two and two, and then the the, the fun one is Pool A. Everybody's two and two right now. Italy, Cuba, Netherlands, Panama, and Chinese Taipei. Um, I was surprised at Italy. I was not nothing against the Italian. You got D'Agostino here on, so I've got some yeah, there. Piazza, yeah. I mean, he was on our show. He he talked about his excitement. He he thought they had a team to compete, and and they did. I thought that I thought the Netherlands got knocked out. They did, yeah. The, uh, Italy and Cuba are the two teams that'll advance. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's well. You would expect of Cuba, though. They're losing a lot of their players now because of. I've read the stories where some of them just wouldn't go back and play Cuba because they were treated so poorly when they when they left, and so it was. It was more the politics why they didn't want to go back and play for for Cuba. But uh, overall, it's been it's been uh, so interesting to see, uh, you know, how the game has is becoming and in, in in the future it's going to be, uh, you know, such a global game. I, I think Ozzy Virgil was the first player from the Dominican Republic to play in the big leagues. I faced Ozzy when he was. Uh, with the Tigers. And then it was Murakami, a reliever, came over and pitched for the Giants. That was the first player from from Japan. And now we're going to begin to see players from every country. I've always, I told the kids in New Zealand when I was there, 
I said, if, if one of you gets over there and makes it in the big leagues, it's going to light the fire for every kid in New Zealand to say, man, I, if you like baseball, and a lot of them do, as you know, our good friend James Matthews, yeah. uh, who's going to come over here and, and pitch in a tournament in the States. If just one of them makes it in a, in a big way, there have, been, there have been some that have had a cup of coffee up there, but not really stayed around, made a career of it. That's what's going to you know, motivate others from the same country to say, if he can do it, I can do it. That's why it just, it's the four minute mile, right? It's one person has to do it. And then everybody finds a way and they break through that barrier. And, and I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I was going to mention James as well. He'll be coming over in July pitching for, for our group one-on-one. And we already know we'll have Duke in the stands watching him. They already yeah. called today, um, to say that they, well, I just, I just hope. And again, I, I know, uh, in talking to uh, Chris Pollard, who's the coach of Duke and has seen James that, you know, the first thing they, they begin to look at is velocity. And, uh, I always like that. Not that it's going to do these young pitchers any good, but I, I like to use my example of myself. I mean, I, uh, I won enough games in, in college and high school that I got the attention uh, of a scout and got a chance to try out and sign. But after my first season in the minor leagues, rookie league, I won five, lost six, had a lot of bad games. I had a few dominant games. But the manager said to me at the end of that year, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. And see, that's the James Matthews and the other kids that don't have the power right now. They're not going to get that chance maybe because the, the scouts won't look past that to say, well, what kind of a pitcher might he become when he's 21? Maybe he's, you know, I went from like uh, 5'10", 165 to 6'3", gangly like Marmaduke, and then all of a sudden I'm 6'4", 225. And, and you know, if if they had the same scouting rules in place uh, then that they have now, I would have never gotten a chance. Yeah, you and a number of others, right? I mean, that's the, the the story with a lot of guys now when they look at it, the Greg Maddox, the Jamie Moyers. Yeah. Um, I joked with somebody, I, I gave a talk the other day, and I'm, Jim, I'm 5'10", 170 pounds on a good day. And when I walk into a, a stadium or a gym, they don't look at me and say, oh, there was a pro athlete. Oh, I, I, played, I played college basketball as well for four years. And I, uh, I tell them, I said, if I were coming out today, I wouldn't get a sniff in part because I beat the ball into the ground. I was a switch hitter. So you couldn't platoon yeah. me. I was my own platoon. And, uh, I was a 1955s looking shortstop, you know, when that was, you know, when everybody was five ten and below and sure. uh, that darn Ripken ruined it for everybody. Six, four. Yeah, that's right. Like, uh, like Johnny bench did for catchers, you know, all of a sudden he became a catcher that could hit. Yeah. And up until then, if a catcher could just catch, even if he hit two ten. Uh, you know, he was a valuable player on your team, but uh, that's how the game has evolved, uh, power and speed. And, and uh, I, I just hope that the young fans take to it. Uh, unfortunately, I think one of the attractions for the young fans, and I get this uh, from my grandsons that tell me, is that they are now getting involved because of the gambling aspect. Yeah. That's kind of sad that we have to depend on that to really – be a, an added source of interest from our young people. You just hope that the game can become attractive enough and, and maybe this pitch clock that's speeding up the time so they're not sitting there for uh, three and a half, four hours and seeing a ball go in play about every 
eight minutes or something. So I hope that that turns it around where people really get interested. I did. I heard that three times today myself in conversations with people talking about the uh, the fantasy and the pitch to pitch inning to inning gambling that can happen in a game, making it more interesting. And it made me cringe. Um, yeah. Because as you and I see the game, there's so much. When when you add that quick fix into liking the game, it's going to eliminate people from looking at the nuances that we see when we watch it. And that's well, that's that's kind of why I've lost interest and consider myself irrelevant. I want to follow the game. I mean, I've gotten to uh, know some of the Twins players because I'm still affiliated with them. Uh, Joe Ryan, Sonny Gray, uh, they got some some good young position players. So I'm interested and following them and hope they do well. But I, I am not attracted to watch uh, the game like I like I was even when I played. I was a fan. You know, I, I love watching the game. Yeah. But uh, other than the, uh, the individual, the skills of the individual players that you like to see, I mean, nothing can be uh, more impressive to me than seeing Nolan Arenado make some of the plays he makes at third base. But Overall, that that doesn't trump having a, a nine-inning game that gets your attention for a number of different reasons uh, beyond just the home run. Yeah, and, and possibly it's education, educating the young kids on the game. That's kind of what we're trying to do on the network here. You know, we're in the grassroots. We're now in 70 countries. Uh, we, we've, we've expanded even in the last week, which is great. We've got yeah. kids listening from all over the world, so... Hopefully they're paying attention closely. I know they are because we reinforce it to what you're saying. And my friend, you are not irrelevant. At the very least, you got an you've got an audience of one in me because I get smarter every time I talk to you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I tagging along what you said. I, I hope that to get the interest. Uh, and we mentioned the Hall of Fame. And when you tour the Hall of Fame, there's a 17 minute video that shows highlights of from Ken Griffey Jr. to Derek Jeter to a lot of the players, and then you go on that tour. And I've said to the Josh Rawich, the president, and, and John Chestafoski there, I said, every the Hall of Fame should make an effort to have every organization show that video in, in spring training to every minor league player, every major league player, to really learn where this game came from and, and why they are able to do what they do today and make millions of dollars. Uh, I think, I think our young players have to be educated in that instead of just, uh, you know, drafting them and signing them and throw them on a ball and say, here, go play. I agree. And that, that kind of probably maybe segues into teasing a, a potential topic for our next show. Um, I know we talked off the air a little bit about uh, your you know, your former teammate, Kurt Flood, who paved the way for a lot of uh, players in terms of free agency. That may be worth uh, educating our fan base on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the history of going through there is, uh, I mean, I've been fortunate to go through it several times and I don't like to take for granted how, uh, you know, what I owe the, the players of back in the twenties, thirties, forties. I mean, what Babe Ruth did for the game in his, in his era. And, uh, you know, the, the popularity of baseball didn't just fall out of the sky. There were some players back there that created it. Yeah, no, I agree totally. Um, we used to, my dad and I used to go every year. I grew up in upstate New York, so I was about an hour and 15 minutes from Cooperstown. So we would, we would go up every summer after baseball was over, take a trip up there right before the fall where the foliage 
started the beautiful trees up there in, in uh, upstate New York on your drive up there through Oneana and, and whatnot, and uh, did it all the way up to the age of 22. Went up every summer with them. Yeah, that's great. It's a great little village. Great experience to go there. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. We'll we'll, we'll, uh, we'll touch on uh, we'll we'll touch on some of that maybe the next time with uh, you know a lot of the younger fans maybe not aware of what Kurt Flood went through and and how the game when they look at the uh, the multi million dollar they're talking about Otani maybe being <clears throat> the first five hundred million dollar player and young players probably don't realize uh, what Kurt Flood went through and others just to be able to get to free agency so players can do what they do now and make the kind of money they do now. I agree. I think it'd be a great topic and you have a personal tie to, to his story. So that would be, makes it even better. Well, uh, I've kept you for almost an hour today. I, I made you throw extra innings. You went nine and then we brought you back out for the yeah, tip. That's, that's what we sign up to do. Go nine. Right. And you're not even tired. You go another three probably. What, what kind what do you message you want to leave our audience with today? Well, I just think with opening day coming up, you know, I hope you're, I hope your teams, whoever you play for, or pull for, uh, are healthy all year. That seems to be the major topic now, is keeping them, uh, keeping them healthy, and just uh, keep your eye out for some good, young, exciting players that might be out there. That's that's what comes out of spring training is uh, all of a sudden a guy that you've never heard of before uh, comes and becomes a star rookie and uh, a fan favorite. And, that's what I like to see fans get behind. I agree. I agree totally. I'm I'm looking forward to it as well. And we're we're not that far away. March, the beginning of April is my favorite month of sports with the basketball. Do you have any favorites you watch? You follow the March Madness with basketball? Well, I I I'd like to see Purdue. You know, I've I've kind of followed them. Uh, I'm a Michigan guy, but Michigan, Michigan State. There, I don't think they're going to go too far. I'd like to see Purdue. Uh, Purdue win it. I like their coach. They got the big guy, Zach Eady. Oh, yeah. Uh, who can, and usually if you have a, a good big man like that in these games, because uh, again, basketball has evolved and it's not that finesse pass and dribble. You know, it's it's kind of one on one, three point shots, and then you got a big man in the middle there. And Purdue has all those things. Uh, be nice to see them do it. But yeah, Zach we're Eady. probably going to see a lot of those. Uh, you know, unknown, unheard of teams. And that's what's fun too. The Robert Morrises and teams like that, that come out of nowhere and get your attention. Yeah. I, I've, I've got mine and it's actually a landing spot of yours. Watch Vermont in the first round. They won. Oh yeah. The Catamounts. Oh, I'm telling you. They they, uh, my buddies up there, tell me about their basketball there. And they, do they play today or tomorrow? They play tomorrow. They're a 15 seed, but they've won. I think they've won 17 straight games. Yeah. Uh, they run That's a unique style nice of history in March. They, they've, they've pulled some upsets over the last decade. Yeah, well, I'd be fine with them going going deep into the tournament. That'd be fun to watch. Yep, I'm going to throw two names. Vermont and watch UNC Asheville. Those are my two okay. upsets in the first round. So see if I'm, now, if I get it right, I'll bring it up next show. If not, I'll forget about it, and I won't even talk. Okay. All right, Dave. Enjoyed it, as always. Thanks, Jim. And that was episode 140, Cots Corner right here. Audience, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, follow us on social media. We should push over 14,000 subscribers by the end of the day. So we appreciate your support. And Jim, great show again today. We appreciate you. Okay, Dave.